Welcome to episode 91 of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast for the week of March 3, 2008. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. On this week's episode of the Fredcast, we say goodbye to friend Sheldon Brown, talk about the death at an alley cat race in Chicago, lots of pro tour news, a product recall, a cyclist pressing charges under a three-foot rule, and much more. Following the news, is your bike really safe with your bicycle lock? And a cycling brush with greatness. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike hammer, just a little bit harder, because here comes the Fredcast. This week's episode of the Fredcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you for your PayPal donations, and thank you for supporting the advertisers whose links are shown at www.thefredcast.com. By buying from those advertisers through those links, you get the same low prices as always, but you help support the show. All monies raised go directly back to supporting the Fredcast. Hey, welcome back to the Fredcast. This is episode 91. This is David, and I'm glad to have you with me. First of all, I just have to give you just a little picture into the life of the Fredcast. Well, the last couple of weeks have been very, very interesting. After my last show, which was the Outdoor Retailer Winter Market show, we had planned on getting ready for the Tour of California and we're working with the folks over at Bicycle.net to prepare those shows. And then, well, life hits you square in the face. And a lot of you know that my wife does have multiple sclerosis. And unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, we had a flare-up. It was not a good one. Um, basically, she lost the vision in one of her eyes. And thanks to some great doctors here at the University of Utah, all is well with her again. Well, just about the time that she started to feel well, and she was able to see through that eye again, well... If you've been following my website, you'll know that I had a little bit of a ski accident. I was on the first run of the day here at the canyons in Park City, Utah, and basically didn't see a cat track. It got launched in the air and did not stick the landing. I was, however, wearing a helmet. And by the way, you know that I'm an evangelist for bicycle helmets. I am now an evangelist for ski helmets. This is the first season that I've worn a helmet skiing. And I'm not exaggerating when I say it is quite possible that that helmet just may have saved my life. So please, I know you wear your helmets when you ride your bikes. I'd also encourage you strongly to wear a helmet when you ski or snowboard because it could save your life. Well, in addition to wearing the helmet, I was also wearing wearing a helmet cam. And if you go to the website, you can take a look at the lovely video that resulted. Now, the crash was much more spectacular than it appears on the video. The result, a broken nose, second time I've broken the nose in my life, a broken left thumb that required surgery. They've inserted two pins into my thumb. I get to see what those look like tomorrow when they take my cast off and then put a new one on. I severely bruised my right eye, and it is just now starting to feel better. So that was interesting. 
Then somewhere around the same time, I also had a hard drive crash. Oh, and by the way, that was right in the middle of when I was doing the daily podcasts from the Amgen Tour of California. So you didn't even realize I had a hard drive crash because the shows just continued. So it's been quite interesting. Now, I want to go back to the MS topic for just one quick second and beg your indulgence. In the next couple of weeks, I will be playing some audio public service announcements about bike MS, what you used to know as the MS-150s. Those have now changed the branding, and they're now called Bike MS, and there are over 100 of them all across the country, and I've put a link in the show notes to where you can find one in your neck of the woods. But the folks at the National MS Society are working with me to set up a national FredCast team so that if you want to go do a bike MS, and there are some amazing events, I've done some all around the country, if you want to do a bike MS and you're not a member of a team, you can be the captain of your local FredCast team and help us help defeat multiple sclerosis. I will have more details on that in the coming weeks as well as those public service announcements. In the meantime, go to bikems.org, and there is a link in the show notes, and find the one in your neck of the woods and mark it down on your calendar, and then plan on joining Team Fredcast. Okay, enough announcements. It is time for the news. The first story is not a happy one, and it is not incredibly recent. It is definitely a couple of weeks old. But it's important to those of us who are Freds and those of us who have been touched by an individual by the name of Sheldon Brown. Sheldon Brown was 63 when he passed away a couple of weeks ago, and he was well known to cyclists all over the country, perhaps all over the world. Now, Sheldon wasn't famous to those folks because of his work at Harris Cyclery in West Newton, Massachusetts. Instead, he was well known for... His technical wizardry, you might call him a tech guru or an uber-fred in the cycling world, he had the most incredible website with some great technical information for cyclists of all abilities and of all stripes, colors, and it is still available. The link is in the show notes, and of course, if you're also on the Enhanced Podcast, the link is in your podcast. He died at the age of 63, and he died of what, until his death, was considered a mystery ailment. It turned out, coincidentally, that Sheldon died from complications due to primary progressive multiple sclerosis. I can't tell you the number of emails that I received um, after Sheldon's death and continue to receive, even these couple of weeks later. I Twittered about it uh, when I heard about it, and the the emails of of surprise and shock and the emails of support for the work that Sheldon uh, performed just continue to flood in. Sheldon was an amazing individual. There is no doubt that Sheldon Brown will be missed. And if you'd like to get just a small sense of the reasons why, I'd encourage you to check out his website. Again, the link is in the show notes. Or check out the memorial website that has been set up for Sheldon Brown and see the comments that people have left there to memorialize Sheldon. So Sheldon, we wish you smooth roads and tailwinds, my friend. Now, unfortunately, I have another death to tell you about, and this one is absolutely senseless and and totally preventable. 
Matthew Manger Lynch was 29 years old when he died participating in a race called the Tour de Chicago. This is an annual unofficial street race that takes place in stages over multiple weeks in Chicago with riders earning points for each stage of the event that they are able to win. And it takes place throughout the winter and it's been going on for a number of years in Chicago. This is known as an alley cat race. Essentially, this is something where um, organizers don't do the normal things that race organizers do, like blocking off roads, um, like letting the law enforcement officials know that this is coming through. Instead, part of the thrill, I suppose, of a race like this is the fact that you are racing in traffic, that uh, you have to manage to find your way through intersections, even if traffic lights are against you. And this is exactly how Matthew Manger Lynch was killed when he went through an intersection. The light was not with him. He had a red light, an SUV traveling uh, perpendicular to him, had the green light, struck him, and killed him. Now, here's the problem. Uh, Number one, I don't know why anyone would want to participate in a race like this, knowing that you have the possibility of going through intersections where you simply do not have the right of way. Uh, No matter what your thoughts are about the primacy of fuel-less transportation, uh, the simple fact of the matter is that going up against any car, whether it's a, a Cooper Mini or whether it's a huge SUV, you're on a bicycle and you are going to lose. I can't imagine why you would want to participate in a race like this. Well, The ABC7 in Chicago did an interview with a couple of people in the Chicago area. One, a bike shop owner by the name of Mark Matei, and another, a race organizer or an event organizer named Alex Wilson. Both involved in cycling, but listen to the difference in the two answers that they gave when asked about this event. First, you'll hear from the shop owner race through red lights for the sake of winning some relatively meaningless event, uh, it's a tragedy. It, it shouldn't be allowed to continue. The city should, should make some attempt to rein this in. It's not a healthy approach to cycling. And now cycling organizer and friend to Manger Lynch, Alex Wilson. To blame a victim for, for dying such a tragic death uh, and I think is an injustice. Uh, and I think it's an injustice that our, our culture is so embedded uh, into auto use and the convenience of autos that we are willing to uh, let, let our, our friends and loved ones be killed. Bicycles don't kill people. Cars kill people. I believe that laws should be written uh, to reflect the liability of your mode of transportation. Uh, It's very doubtful that if you get hit by a bicyclist that you'll even go to the hospital. Uh, If you get hit by an SUV, there's a very good chance that you're going to be killed. Uh, And the laws don't reflect the liability of the vehicle. Two very, very different sides to a story. And my personal opinion is This Alex Wilson has got it completely wrong. I understand that there are a lot of you out there, a lot of cyclists who believe that bicycles are a superior mode of transportation to cars. I get that. You're absolutely right. For a variety of reasons, bikes are superior. But the fact of the matter is that we live in a nation of laws. 
And the laws say that when you get to a red light, you stop. And when you go have a green light, you go. And to blame the SUV driver or to disavow blame for the participants in this event is irresponsible, immature, reckless, and unnecessarily idealistic. Mr. Wilson, get a clue. This race goes beyond the bounds of what is proper and correct in any society. I grieve for the fact that your friend died, but he died unnecessarily. And at the same time, the organizers of this race bear responsibility for his death. I also feel for the driver of that SUV. That person was put in a situation unnecessarily and now has to deal with the guilt of having been a party to the death of another human being. This must stop. Now, if you would like to get some sort of an idea of what a race like this looks like and why I am so energized against it, I have put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video that shows a very similar kind of a race that took place in the streets of London. This video has thousands and thousands of views, and it shows bicycle messengers racing through the streets of London against traffic on the wrong side of the road, through red lights, almost hitting police cars, hitting pedestrians, not wearing helmets. And it's a wonder that any of them survived that ride. If any of you do participate in Alley Cat races, I would love to hear from you because I would love to get your perspective on why you would participate in an activity like this. I'm now stepping off my soapbox. Well, let's talk about races of a different sort, professional bike racing. And for the first time in the Pro Tour's history, there was a Pro Tour event outside of the European continent. And this one took place at the Tour Down Under in Australia. The winner, Andre Greipel, and he is therefore leading the Pro Tour rankings right now with 62 points, followed by Jose Joaquin Rojas Gil from Spain with 38 points, and in third, Mikael Delage from France with 30 points. In the team standings, Francaise de Joux is on top, followed by Sonier Duval Scott, and then Cast Duparnia. Now, there are plenty more Pro Tour events coming up. The next races in the Pro Tour calendar, the Tour of Flanders on April the 6th, the Vuelta Ciclista al País Vasco, April 7th through the 12th, the Ghent-Vevelgem, April the 9th, the Amstel Gold Race, April the 20th, and then the Tour of Romandie, April the 29th through May the 4th. And of course, it is that time of the year for the non-Pro Tour events, but still the Spring Classics, things like Milan-San Remo, Ron von Vlanderen, Ghent-Vevelgem, Paris-Roubaix, and Flesh Wallon. And of course, I will try to bring you as many of those results here on the Fredcast as time will allow. But there is one upcoming race which has turned the professional cycling world upside down, and that race is Paris-Nice. Now, a little bit of history. Last year, you may recall, we covered it here on the Fredcast, the UCI was threatening ASO, the Amori Sports Organization. That's the group that puts on the Tour de France and other races, including Paris-Nice. The UCI was threatening ASO for not inviting all 20 Pro Tour teams to Paris-Nice. Now, the flap last year centered around the fact that 
ASO didn't want to invite the Unibet team. Something about French laws, you'll remember, uh, not allowing foreign betting agencies to sponsor professional sports organizations. We, of course, will leave the lotto team out of that conversation. In actuality, however, while that's what the UCI was hanging their hat on, most people believe that the real reason for ASO's decision had more to do with their ongoing dispute with the UCI, and the dispute also of the organizers of the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta a España. And it had more to do with their dispute about their disagreement with the Pro Tour rules than it did about some arcane French law about who sponsors which team. Well, guess what? Pat McQuaid is once again upset at ASO for their unilateral decision to uninvite Team Astana from this year's Tour de France. So let's rewind again. You'll recall that last year at the 2007 Tour de France, Team Astana had a number of riders who really embarrassed the tour organizers with their doping problems at the Tour de France. Now let's fast forward to right now. Team Astana is a completely different team. Most people, in fact, believe it's simply Team, Dis in team Discovery in different colors with a different name. Look at the riders. Alberto Contador, Levi Leipheimer. Hey, there's Johan Bernil. This is a completely different team. So there are very, very many people who are upset, including me, at ASO's decision to uninvite Astana from the Tour de France. As a matter of fact, there's a website that you can go on and you can voice your opinion. It's letleviride.com. Why it's not called let albertoride.com, I'm not quite sure, because it's Contador who's the defending champion. Well, Levi was on the podium, there's no doubt about that. Most people would like to see Alberto Contador riding in this race, and of course we'd all like to see Levi riding as well. But if you'd like to voice your opinion, let leviride.com. Now, I digress. As a result of this whole flap, as really the result of Pat McQuaid being upset with ASO for uninviting Astana, but it's wrapped up in the ASO's decision and the French Cycling Federation's agreement to quote-unquote nationalize Paris-Nice. In other words, to place Paris-Nice exclusively in the French national cycling calendar and therefore under the exclusive jurisdiction of French law instead of under the UCI's jurisdiction. In a statement by Pat McQuaid on February 29th, he said, quote, while ASO could have registered the Paris-Nice race on the international calendar, it preferred to register the event on the French calendar with special status. This status means that the participation of professional teams is prohibited and places the event outside international regulations, effectively making it a rogue event. Nevertheless, all 20 Pro Tour teams have indeed decided to participate in Paris-Nice. As a result, yet another press release came out from the UCI in which it said, quote, the UCI reminds riders that their participation in the Paris-Nice race under these conditions could have several unfortunate consequences for them. In particular, the lack of insurance in the event of an accident, if the insurance companies refuse to cover a race held outside the regulations. And then this cryptic sentence. This is just one example of the consequences. The participation of a rider in the Paris-Nice may also have regulatory consequences, including a possible suspension of up to six months. So the teams want to participate, 
The organizers of Perry-Nice are not budging, and the UCI is ratcheting up the language. On March 2nd, there was a meeting of the Congress of the European Cycling Union, and this took place in Greece, and this is where the federations from around Europe, the cycling federations from each of the country, countries got together and discussed a variety of topics, including Perry-Nice. And they voted, and the majority voted in favor of the UCI and against the French National Federation. Pat McQuaid was quoted as saying, quote, this decision shows clearly that the European National Federations want races organized on their continent to respect the rules established by the UCI. He then went on to say, this is a shot across the bows for anyone who is thinking of breaking away from the established regulatory framework. Perry Nice begins this Sunday, March the 9th, and runs through March 16th. With just a few days before the race, I think that there's probably more posturing, more saber-rattling, and more developments to come. Keep an eye on www.thefredcast.com and my Twitter feed. I will try to keep you up to date on the developments as they occur. And of course, we will have more news for you and at least preliminary results on next week's episode 92 of the Fredcast. Stay tuned. Okay, moving away from racing and into products, I've got a product recall to tell you about. This one covers about 49,000 Trek Model MT220 girls' bikes. Trek has received 13 reports of frames breaking on these bikes, including four minor injuries. Obviously, the issue here is that the frames can break, causing the rider to fall, lose control, and suffer injuries. Now, this recall involves Trex Girls Bikes model MT, that's Mike Tango 220, for model years 2005, 2006, and 2007. And you'll find the model name printed on the bike frame. Model year 2008 bikes are not, I repeat, are not included in this recall. Now, these model MT220 girls bikes were sold by Trek dealers throughout the United States from April 2004 through June 2007, and they went for about $300. If you or your child has one of these bikes, you should take, <laughs> this is directly from the CPSC's website, quote, consumers should take the recalled bicycle away from children immediately and return it to a Trek dealer for a free replacement or a $100 discount on a different size Trek bike. In other words, if your daughter has one of these bikes and she's outgrown it, you can return it and get a $100 discount on a brand new bike. Not bad. For more information, go ahead and check the website at www.thefredcast.com. Click the show notes link at the top of the page. Go to show number 91 for this week. And I have links to the CPSC's website directly to the recall, also to the Trek recall website, or you can call Trek between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday at 1-800-373-4594. That's 1-800-373-4594. They are also open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time on Saturdays. Also on the product front, you will be interested to find out that 
Nautilus, the fitness manufacturer, has been the owner of Pearl Izumi for a number of years, something that I personally did not know. And apparently they've been shopping around for a buyer for Pearl Izumi since at least the fall of last year. Now, according to news stories that I read, many of the potential suitors for Pearl Izumi were venture capitalists uh, and private equity firms who simply wanted to buy it, build it, and sell it yet again. So they really weren't interested in maintaining the brand for themselves. However, Nautilus was able to find a buyer who no doubt is interested in the brand and will grow it and probably keep it forever. The buyer, the new owner of Pearl Izumi, Shimano. Yep, the same people who make your fishing reels, oh yeah, and the drivetrain components on your bike. According to Shimano spokespeople, they plan to strengthen the brand and stand by it, but they will keep the two companies' managements separate. Perlazumi's headquarters will remain in Broomfield, Colorado. According to news reports, Nautilus sold the company for $69.5 million, and that was $65.3 million in cash and the assumption of $4.2 million in long-term debt. This transaction is expected to close at the end of this month, March 31st, 2008. Meanwhile, Shimano reported that their 2007 net income jumped 44% last year to about $178 million after they set an all-time sales record of nearly, get this, $1.9 billion last year. So no doubt Shimano could certainly afford the Pearl Izumi purchase. Congratulations to both Shimano and Pearl Izumi and to consumers, because I have no doubt in my mind that Pearl Izumi will continue to be a strong brand for many years to come, thanks to the purchase by Shimano. Well, here's a story that is not only in my backyard, but is also right up my alley. I'll explain. Salt Lake City cyclist Jason Boltman is pressing charges against the driver of a car involved in an incident that violated the state's new, well, relatively new, three-foot buffer law. Now, we've talked about that here on the show before. Many states are beginning to enact a law that says that motorists must maintain a distance of at least three feet from cyclists on the road. And this law went into effect here in the state of Utah in 2005. But here's what happened to Jason. He was pedaling on a certain street in Salt Lake City in November when a red pickup truck zoomed up beside him. The passenger stuck out his hand and swiped Boltman across his back. According to the newspaper article, of course, Boltman was startled. And by the way, he commutes all year on his bike. And with the snow that we've had here in Utah, kudos to you, Jason, for doing that. You're a better man than I. He originally feared that he was so close to the truck that it was going to send him sprawling into the street. Instead, the truck veered away, the passenger withdrew inside, and Jason intelligently, and to his credit, took down the license number for what will now be the first prosecution under the three-foot law here in Utah and it is a 2005 law, so good for him for doing this. Now, this is a misdemeanor charge with a possible $750 fine and 90 days in jail, but there is no minimum mandatory fine, and so far the Utah courts are completely 
untested in this case. According to the cyclist, authorities gave him several options, including charging the passenger with assault. But instead, he decided to go for the three-foot rule because he feels that it was the driver's fault for veering so close to the cyclist. The driver obviously knew, at least in his opinion, uh, what he was doing. Now, one more thing about Jason Boltman. Not only is he aware of this law as an informed cyclist in Utah, but he's also the president of the Salt Lake City Bicycle Collective. Plus, in 2004, he was involved in a car and bicycle crash that crushed his ankle. According to the newspaper article, he's quoted as saying, quote, my side job in life is to try to educate people that bicycling is a great way to get around town. And certainly in Salt Lake City, we've got a lot of uh, bicycle-friendly uh, bike paths and bike lanes, and it is a great way to get around town. So I told you that this was right up my alley also because I was involved in a similar incident like this in Santa Clarita, uh, California, where the final stage, well, the second to last and the final stage of the Amgen Tour of California took place a couple of weeks ago. When I lived up there, I was involved in an incident where I was simply out on a training ride and a couple of kids decided to get very close to me with their car and to shoot at me with their airsoft pistols. Now, they call it soft, but when all you're wearing is a Lycra cycling jersey, it hurts. And my feeling on the matter was that while I wasn't knocked off my bike, that if it wasn't me, it might have been a mom, it might have been a kid, it might have been a grandpa, and they might have panicked, and they might have easily fallen into traffic on a road where people are going 50, 60 miles an hour, and they might have been hurt. I also pressed charges. And they were a couple of juveniles, and they did get in a bit of trouble for uh, this offense. The prosecutor did not take kindly to anyone being shot at with anything from a vehicle. So, Congratulations to Jason Boltman. I think he's doing the right thing. And congratulations to the state of Utah and other states for enacting this three-foot buffer law. It is going to keep all of us cyclists safer out there on the road. Meanwhile, in parts of England, there are criminal acts of another sort going on. Now, you may recall a few months ago, we talked about the fact that uh, the installation of closed-circuit TV cameras seems to be deterring bicycle thefts. Well, there's now a new incentive for bicycle thefts, and that simply is the worldwide price increase on various metals. The increase in prices of metals is driving up the cost and the price being paid for scrap metal, including lead and copper and various other metals. And as a result, in parts of the UK, bicycle thefts are up. And in this case, it's not nice bikes, carbon fiber bikes, but less expensive junker bikes that are being sold. For instance, in Oxfordshire, there have already been 55 more bikes stolen in the first two months of 2008 compared to the same period last year. And police are now investigating whether this sharp rise is linked the same organized criminal gangs behind the theft of lead and copper from buildings across the country. Already this year, there have been 338 bikes stolen compared to 283 in the first two months of 2007. And throughout the country, dozens of pubs, 
churches and homes have had their roofs stripped of lead and copper. The metal is sold at scrapyards for what the newspapers describe as a healthy profit in what has become a national multi-million pound crime wave. So for those of you who are in the UK, in Oxfordshire in particular, keep an eye on your bikes, especially if they're of the less expensive variety, and keep listening to the show because later on we'll be talking to Carlton Reed from bikebiz.com and quickrelease.tv, oh yes, and the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast because he recently participated in a research project looking at the protection offered by a variety of different bike locks. I think you'll want to stay tuned for that. Now, among the topics that we talk about often on the show, there's pro cycling news, there's cars versus bikes, there's some environmental news, and of course, we talk about doping. But here's a doping story of a different sort because this does not surround professional athletes or professional cyclists. No, this one is about high school athletes. There is a mountain bike league in Northern California, the NorCal High School Mountain Bike League, which has recently released their new rules for their 2008 racing season. Included among the rules, banning the consumption of caffeine at their competitions. The rule is motivated by concerns about of course, athletes' health, but also in response to what is termed a tremendous surge of new caffeinated energy products and related marketing, Red Bull, etc., and the fact that so many high schoolers are now reporting caffeine dependency. According to a news report I read over the past few years, the Mountain Bike League has seen an increase in caffeine usage among its athletes. Some of the athletes strategizing timed consumption of caffeinated products on the final lap of the race. As an organization dedicated to positive youth development, they, of course, are not in favor of any performance enhancement-based mentality. I mean, caffeine, I suppose they're considering, is a gateway drug. It's caffeine today, and it's EPO tomorrow. According to Matt Fritzinger, the league founder and director, quote, the conversation began when I was approached for the second time by Brand X, obviously referring to one of these caffeinated drink companies. Brand X said themselves that youth originally were not in their marketing plan, but that Brand Y, a so-called leading coffee shop franchise, changed their minds. The marketing representative made it clear they wanted product in hand, I realize this is a lot like the cigarette industry was. They get the free samples out there, and then they can count on a percentage of lifelong addict. Though less harmful than cigarettes, this strategy is the same. He went on to say, over the next couple of years, I spoke with many high school athletes and coaches. Some athletes admitted they were already addicted to certain energy drinks, and I found that coaches were supportive of the ban. At the 2007 Coaches Conference, we brought up the idea and found that we had tremendous support. And since then, other audiences have met the idea with standing ovations. Finally, he goes on to say, there have been questions about enforcement. It's true that we do not have a test, but nor can we afford a test for steroids or EPO. However, we have a three-to-one ratio of dedicated adults working with the athletes and with good coaching and education. Kids usually make the right decisions. So, my opinion kudos to this league. I think that they are setting the right example. And I like what the league founder and director said about having a three to one ratio of dedicated adults, because it's up to us as adults to set the proper, well, the proper priorities and of course the proper example. And 
using any performance enhancement can lead to using many performance enhancements. With the problems that we've seen over the last few years in virtually every professional sport, I don't think that they have a problem with these kids using caffeine in their daily lives. But to use it, say, on the last lap of a race because they think they're going to get a performance advantage, that's beginning a mindset that will last them for many years to come and one which will not serve them well. So congratulations to the NorCal Mountain Bike League for doing this and taking this step. Meanwhile, in my former backyard in Los Angeles, California, there have been plans for a number of years to extend the LA River bike path all the way from Long Beach to Canoga Park, and it would be a centerpiece of the city's plans to increase alternative transportation in the City of Angels, which, as we all know, is traffic and smogged choked. Just a couple of the reasons I moved away, by the way. But one of the things that I truly loved in Los Angeles was the LA River bike path, and I had the opportunity to participate in the LA River ride several times that went from Griffith Park down to Long Beach and back. Well, as they try to extend and add more pieces to the LA River bike path, city officials have run into a bit of a snag because while they're trying to add to the bike path, they're also running up against LA's entertainment industry routes, specifically NBC Universal. You see, because the LA River goes right through the backyard of the back lot of NBC Universal. Officials there simply do not want the bike path to go through for a variety of reasons. Some security concerns, some, well, some intelligence concerns, in other words, worries about people uh, spying on production, and also because there's a number of fairly high-profile production offices that parallel the river. Now, studio officials say that they're not opposed to a bike path on their property. They just don't want it to go along the river. City officials are also concerned that CBS Studio Center in Studio City, which sits on both sides of the waterway, might also be a problem when they try to go through their end of the river as well. Now, according to Jennifer Klausner, executive director of the LA County Bicycle Coalition, the bike path offers this chance for to give cyclists a way to get across the city without dealing with streets, to which I say amen. She went on to say, quote, the beauty of the river path is that it's basically flat and separated from the road for people who want a quieter ride and don't want to hump it over the hill. For his part, LA County Supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky said that he wants Universal to study the bike path as part of its environmental reports on its project. Quote, the fact is that we have a public bike path along some of the most expensive and reclusive properties along the ocean, from Will Rogers Beach to Torrance. I don't think it's a mutually exclusive proposition to have a bike path and a secure studio in the same location. I hope that Zev and Jennifer both get their way because it would be a tragedy to take cyclists off the river path, put them back onto the streets, and then back onto the river path again just to get around NBC Universal. And I want to thank Fritz over at Cyclicious for pointing me in the direction of this story. Two more things we've talked about on the show numerous times. Number one, the United States' first cyclist, George W. Bush, and his affinity for mountain biking. And two, 
Danish cyclists. Well, they came together last weekend in Crawford, Texas, when the Danish Prime Minister Anders Fogh Rasmussen met with George Bush at his ranch in Crawford, Texas, and they went for a mountain bike ride. According to George W. Bush, the man didn't even break into a sweat. He looked at Rasmussen and said, you are in incredible condition. Meanwhile, Rasmussen said, you made me work very hard out there on the terrific mountain bike trails of your wonderful ranch. The two men reportedly rode bare-armed, wearing helmets and shorts in the warm Texas winter weather during their outing on Friday and on Saturday. According to Rasmussen, quote, I can't imagine a better symbol of the close and strong ties between the United States and Denmark. Sounds like they had a nice ride, and I wish more world leaders would meet cycling. Perhaps even more business leaders would meet cycling, because in my opinion, cycling beats golf as a networking activity any day of the week. Well, every once in a while, I end the news with a story that I call News of the Weird. And it's one of those stories that I can't summarize for you. I can't commentate on. I just have to read it verbatim. And once again, thanks to Fritz from Cyclicious for letting me know about this one. I'm going to read it verbatim. Polish police are baffled after a cyclist was badly burned when his trousers burst into flames. Mieseslav Jazinski, 55, told doctors he smelt burning and looked down to see that his trousers had caught fire. He jumped off his bike and rolled on the ground trying to douse the flames but suffered second-degree burns to his legs, back, and stomach. Passersby spotted him lying at the side of the road in Koroshin, still smoking from the tattered remains of his trousers and groaning in pain. A police spokesman said, quote, Witnesses said he was like a flaming human torch cycling along the road. We do not know how it happened, but we have heard that it could have been caused by a reaction between friction as he cycled, sweat, and the material of his trousers. So take this as a warning. Yet one more reason to always be sure you leave a little extra water in your water bottle because you never know when your pants might spontaneously combust. And with that hot news story, we'll end the news for this episode of the Fredcast. Well, before we get to tonight's features, I just had a question for you, and that was brought to me by a listener who mentioned that his IT department blocks audio files from being, being downloaded through their firewall at the office, apparently because they must believe that if you're listening to an audio file, you must be goofing off at work. Uh, and so his question was, would I offer the Fredcast as a .zip file or a compressed zip archive? And so it's a question for the rest of you. Is this an issue that you have that uh, you would like me to address? It would mean more bandwidth and, and a few more charges from the hosting provider to make sure that I've got enough bandwidth to provide uh, the zip file, the mp3 file, and the AAC file every single week. But if this is a pressing concern for you Fredcast listeners out there and something that would make your lives easier, hey, I live to please and I'll be happy to help you out. So just let me know. Uh, if this is something that you would like, if you'd like me to offer uh, the Fredcast as a zip file in addition to the mp3, the AAC, the real audio, and the Windows Media Player file, I'll be happy to do it. Just if I, I need to get enough of you that are interested. So just let me know. Send me an email, thefredcast at gmail.com, and I will judge your reaction 
and determine whether or not I need to do this. And one more point I wanted to bring up is the fact that for many of you, in your email boxes last night and this morning, you received the latest edition of what I call the Fredcast Feed Zone. It's simply a, an irregularly published email newsletter of news that is happening here at the Fredcast. Uh, for those of you who did not receive the Fredcast Feed Zone but would like to do so, there is a link in the show notes. There is a subscribe button on the homepage at www.thefredcast.com, and I have also put a subscribe link into the enhanced version of the podcast. So if you'd like to receive the Fredcast feed zone and keep up to date on everything that's going on here at the Fredcast, please go to the website and click that subscribe link, and just know that we will never, never sell or give away your email address. And if you would like more information on that, go ahead and click on the link and you can read the privacy policy right there on the website. We use a very reputable email provider called Constant Contact, and I have been very impressed with not only the service they provide to me, but also their privacy protection. So hope that you will be interested in subscribing to the Fredcast Feed Zone. Well, earlier in the show, I mentioned the story that came out of Oxfordshire, England, about the fact that bike thefts are up because people are looking for scrap metal that they can sell. That bit of news from England got me thinking about a story that I saw on my friend Carlton Reed's website at quickrelease.tv. Carlton was asked by a cycling publication to do a little test and to determine how secure bicycle locks really are. I got on the phone earlier today with Carlton and had him explain to me a little bit about the story and give you some tips that you can use when you need to secure your bike and it is out of sight. I am talking to Carlton Reed, and a lot of you know Carlton from the Spokesman podcast, but Carlton is also the editor of Bike Biz magazine in the UK. He's also got his own website, which I highly recommend, quickrelease.tv. And Carlton recently wrote an article for Cycle Magazine. This is the February and March 2008 issue, where he compared a variety of bicycle locks. Carlton, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit, just briefly, Summarize what you did in the article. We basically took a bunch of locks. Now, we is uh, me and two, uh, I'll call them bike thieves for now. We can get into that in a minute. But uh, two bike thieves, and uh, they brought them around to my house. And I, I bought them, by the way. These are not uh, doctored locks. These are, I physically went into a bike shop, and I had a budget of in dollars, uh, $400. And I bought a bunch of locks, and we then took my my bike to uh, just a, a little lane close to the house and we locked the bike up with a whole bunch of these locks and then these guys with me timing them started breaking into them and it didn't take long even for locks that are meant to be uh, certified to uh, what's called a gold standard at this particular lock testing uh, facility it should last five minutes and they were getting into them within seconds I also tried, and I couldn't get into the, the chains because I'm not big enough and meaty enough. But even I was able to get into um, these extremely expensive um, armor-plated locks within, within um, 10 seconds. So take us back. You mentioned the bike thieves. 
tell me a little bit about these guys. Uh, I have I have an image in my mind of what they look like. Uh, it's no secret, really, that the, the the guys we used were the guys that are on the the internet on YouTube, who are, are busting into into locks, and they have a, a lock company. In or one of them has a, a lock company in which he says my locks can't be broken into because he uses extremely heavy chains and it, it's a motorcycle product uh, more than anything because it's just uh, it's just too heavy to, to to take on a bike. But they're aiming, I think, more than at the lock companies because we've always known locks can be breached, you know, using a variety of tools and time, etc. But he's uh, aiming at this UK standards body who lock manufacturers from around the world have to pay to get their locks uh, accredited. And they pay for each test, and then they pay an annual fee per lock. So this, uh, this not-for-profit company is called Soul Secure, and they're certifying locks and saying it takes five minutes to get into this lock and five minutes to get into that lock. And uh, these guys show, no, it doesn't. It's 10 seconds to get into this lock. So why are you certifying it as five minutes? Mm, that's interesting. So what kind of tools were they using to get into these locks? Well, I don't wish to uh, give bike thieves loads of ideas. However, it's all over the web anyway. So, yeah, let's go for it. Uh, they're using bolt croppers at, at various uh, sizes. 42 inches is the big one. And you think, oh, you can't carry that around. But then these guys put it into a, a, a big rucksack. And lo and behold, you know, it just looks normal. So bike thieves, if they're not operating out of out of white vans where they can have any amount of equipment, they can just be wandering around with a large rucksack on their back, getting out these 42-inch bolt croppers, chopping the chains. Uh, they put a blanket over the, the locks to deaden the noise and to stop the, the lock exploding into their face. And off they go. And if, if you're practiced, these guys aren't practiced at, uh, at running away. But if you're practiced, I'm sure you could you could get this technique down so you're breaking into incredibly meaty chains in uh, in 45 seconds probably between finding a bike, looking around, breaking into it, running off. But the other tool, the main tool I think uh, bike thieves are using out there are stubby bikes. Um, um, David, sorry. It's okay. I totally lost what it is. It's a, it's a what, jack. What are they called again? It's a jack, yes, stop it. <laughs> so say that again, the main tool that people yeah, are using. The, the main tools, but the main tools that uh, bike thieves are using are stubby bottle jacks, which are these, they're not really, you wouldn't use them in a car to jack up your car. They're very specific to um, certain uh, workshop jobs, but they're very small, five inches, and uh, they extend to 10 inches. And when they put a, a specific kind of chuck on, they can uh, put that in between the, the space of a U-lock and then just ratchet it. A child could do it. And uh, you, you break into a U-lock. And the, the thrust of the piece in the mag and uh, the, the extended piece that I put on Crickery's TV was, you know, it's important to fill this lock with space. And people have long said it, this is what you need to do. But this is the reason why. So you need to get spokes, frame, and the thing you're locking it to, you need to fill this uh, you lock up so that you, people can't, bike thieves can't get stubby bottle jacks inside. 
Now, one of the things that you pointed out on your website, and I I think it's important for people to understand this, you mentioned it could take a certain amount of time, certainly less than five minutes to break into these locks and people are using bolt cutters and bottle jacks and things like that. And you would think that if someone walking down the street saw a thief breaking into a lock in this way, that they would call the police or they would do something. But you point out on your website that that does not always happen, does it? Oh, there's a famous video, 600,000 views it's had now on YouTube of the Newstad brothers, and they're, they're locking a bike up outside, I think it's New York Central Station. And then they're not just using the tools we were using, they were using angle grinders and all sorts of incredibly obvious tools. And people were just walking past. And then I think there's the, the one bit in which is quite funny is then they say, you know, this person walked past, that person walked past, there's a police van uh, goes past. And then somebody on a moped, on a little uh, brummer, stops. And uh, we think, oh, at last, somebody's about to, to help the cyclist and, and, and make sure nobody nicks that bike. Turns out they were telling the, the Newstead brother, oh, no, you don't want to do it like this. <laughs> you want to do it like that. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's chronic out there. You, you, you are not going to have your bike protected by anybody out there if, uh, if it's, got a, it's locked. People just assume, A, it's either being locked or B, Oh, it's being stolen. Uh, isn't that interesting? And, and just wander on. So we, number one, one of these quote-unquote bike thieves uh, has a lock company. And then, of course, mm. we have friends who work for lock companies. And I'm sure mm. that you've, you've spoken with other lock companies. What do they say when you present them with this kind of evidence? Uh, I kept Donna. If you're talking about Donna of Kryptonite, in the loop from 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 day one, I think she was quite glad that it was me doing the article mm. because she knew I would be uh, I would be controversial. I wouldn't go on the side of the thieves instantly and and say all lock companies are charlatans. But by the same token, nor would I um, instantly defend every single lock company. You know, I do say that you know all these locks out there, you can breach them, and Kryptonite and any of the other lock companies. Uh, would uh, would hope say yes they can be breached given time and this is the thing all a lock is buying it's not buying security it's buying time and if you can make a bike thief think that's going to take me a minute and a half to get into that but then they can see a bike further along similar quality similar uh, second hand value to them oh that's going to take me 30 seconds they're going to go for the 30 second one so I didn't want to, to scare people. I didn't want to say, for God's sake, don't you know, go out there and lock your bikes up because it, it, it's a given. You've got to do that. But there are things you can do. There are products you can use. There are tips you can use to make sure a bike thief goes, mm, that's a two-minute uh, bust. I'm not going to do that one. So let's talk about that. What sort of tips can you give to people uh, that they can use to make sure that, that the bike thief moves on to the other guy's bike? I guess number one is make sure there's lots of other bikes there. Hmm. So you're, you're one bike in a sea of other bikes. Make sure that you're not, uh, you haven't got a good bike in amongst a sea of rubbish bikes. Um, you could also uh, maybe not have the best bike in the world. So you could have a, a rubbish bike for going to town and locking up. And then on the weekend or whenever you, you are training, you can have your good bike. Uh, if you are locking a good bike up, then... Do spend a bit of cash on a good lock. Uh, the tip before of fill that lock up so bottle jacks can't get in. And then what couriers, certainly in London, uh, do is they'll have 
two styles of locks. And I think this is a pretty good tip for anybody who really, really wants to, to be weighted down with locks, but know their bike's still going to be there at the end of the day. And that is if you have, say, a small U-lock, which is going to be difficult for a, a stubby bottle jack to get into anyway, and you marry that with a meaty chain, well, most of the bike thieves out there who are tooled up are going to be tooled up for pretty much one specific kind of lock. They'll be walking around with a bottle jack or they'll be walking around with, with bolt croppers. Highly unlikely to be walking around with both. So if you've got two kinds of lock products and you intertwine them, then the thief is going to say, oh, well, I can get into that half, but I can't get into that half. So instantly, we'll walk away. Yeah, I suppose it's it's a lot like they've interviewed burglars and they've said that they would much rather rob the house that doesn't have the dog. And if there's a house that has a dog, they'll move on. So it's a lot of the tips you're saying. Uh, your lock, uh, if it's if it's used properly, if you use several of them, it's it's like a dog. It, it's going to keep the, the guy away from your bike and hopefully he'll move on to someone else's. What do you think about this thought from this article that, that I mentioned to you earlier that indicates that there have been an increase in thefts of, as you called them, rubbish bikes, actually in the UK, because of the high value of the metals on the scrap market. Uh, that sort of means that even your rubbish bike might get stolen, doesn't it? Well, it's a good advert for carbon fiber bikes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> good point. You're not going to get them recycled, are you? Yeah, that's right. Um, no, but thieves will steal anything. So, okay, it's a bike, but yeah, they'll, they'll probably take the lock as well, because that also has that scrap value. Uh, but uh, they steal uh, manhole covers. There was there was a, a big spate of thefts of manhole covers uh, in cities in, in England just uh, uh, recently, and people falling down them. Uh, because, again, that's scrap value. So, yeah, it happens. But if you're going to uh, lock one of these bikes up and you're using these good locks, then, okay, they'll go and nick somebody else's rubbish bike or they'll go and nick somebody else's good bike. So it's just a matter of locking everything up because... Everything will go walkies if uh, if you don't lock it up, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, for me, my strategy is simply I never leave my bike. Um, no matter what I do, if I'm out for a ride, I will not leave it, even for a few seconds unattended. Mm -hmm. And so that's my strategy. Now, I know that you uh, do a little bit of commuting. I know that you, you take your, your kids back and forth to school on bikes. What strategies do you use when you lock your bikes? Yeah, I mean, keeping it within view at all times is obviously number one secure thing to do. Um, I mean, a lot of the time when I'm commuting, I will take a folding bike. So a folding bike, if I'm going into a, an office to, do, to go and do something, well, I won't lock it up outside. I'll just fold it up and take it with me. Same when I go to London, for instance, and I go shopping. Then I'll actually take the bike in with me. So that was another thing I mentioned in the article. You could actually get a, a folding bike, and that, that, that cuts down that particular avenue because you're physically holding the thing and that's almost as uh, as good as it gets in that everything will will be nicked unless you're holding it perhaps even if you are holding it somebody could run off with it potentially yeah good point well carlton i appreciate you taking the time today and enlightening the listeners on um the, the dangers of, of bike theft and on some tips that they can use to Make sure that their bike is not the one that gets stolen. I will make sure that I put a link in the show notes to, of course, Bike Biz, and uh, in this case, most importantly, your quickrelease.tv article. Thanks again, Carlton. We appreciate you coming on the show. 
Quite right, David. Thank you very much. Well, a good bit of information there, and hopefully you learned a little bit about securing your bike in a public place. Well, hopefully a lot of you enjoyed our daily tour coverage last week from the 2008 Amgen Tour of California. And one of the things that I like to do in that coverage is I like to try to bring you some insights from the race that perhaps you wouldn't get in other uh, online and electronic media. Well, I came across, thanks to a listener, a story on a bicycling forum on the internet that I thought that you might find interesting. And so I had the opportunity to speak with the individual that was involved. His name is Jeff. He's from San Jose, California. I spoke with him earlier this evening, and here's how that conversation went. Excellent. Well, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I was sent a link by a listener who told me that you had rather a unique story from the tour of California. It took me to a website and a uh, an online forum. I read your story and thought that the listeners might be interested in what you have to say. So if you wouldn't mind, what was the story that you posted online? Uh, sure. I'll start from the beginning. Uh, I was headed to see the Tour of California, Stage 3, the big ride over Hamilton and then Sierra Road. And as I, as I was riding to the base of Sierra Road, I saw the helis kind of traversing very rapidly to the base of the climb, and I quickly realized I wasn't going to make it to get up on the climb when the lead riders would go by. So I got to kind of the base, and I saw a few stragglers go up, and I kind of reevaluated, decided I'd head down on Piedmont to, and Calaveras and see him take this kind of tricky corner and maybe get a picture of him around that corner. So at this point, Jeff's sitting there, and he's waiting, and he watches the leaders go by, and then he watches the chase go by, and then he figures, well, pretty much his day is done. He might as well start riding home, and as he's riding down the sidewalk, someone starts calling after him, and Jeff picks up the story here. I'm biking up a small rise, and I hear this red jersey, and I was a little bit paranoid because I was riding on the sidewalk, and I knew that wasn't completely kosher, and I thought it might be a race official yelling at me. Guiltily, I just put my head down and kept riding faster, kept pedaling. I hear it again, red jersey, and I'm kind of surprised that they're this invested in catching me. So again, just keep pedaling harder. And then finally, again, I hear red jersey maybe right behind me. So I guiltily just kind of stop on the sidewalk, turn my head around, uh, and I saw all I see is Team CSC rider coming right at me. He immediately shouts at me, I need your rear wheel. So Jeff's first thought isn't actually, well, maybe I shouldn't give you my wheel. It was, I've got a 9-speed. You've probably got a 10-speed. The rider's reaction was pretty funny, actually. The rider held up his tire and said, it's better than this. And he held up his F404 that was uh, completely trashed on the rim. The carbon fiber was delaminated and separated. So they exchange wheels. Jeff actually uh, gives the, the rider one of those running starts like they do in the Tour de France. And as the rider starts to crest the hill, almost in like sort of a Santa Claus way in the night before Christmas, the rider turns around. Then he kind of turned his head around and shouted out, Team CSC, see you at the finish. We'll hook you up. <laughs> so at this point, Jeff still doesn't even know who he gave the wheel to. He knows the guy's in a CSC jersey. He's pretty sure he's a professional because he's got a number on his back. But he's also got a bike that's unrideable because he's got this rear wheel that's completely trashed. 
So he gets a couple of other spectators to take him to the finish line. But by the time he gets there, CSC is completely gone. They've packed up. They've gone to their hotel in Monterey. Jeff's only opportunity at this point is to hope that the information he was given by a Mavic support driver about the name of the hotel is real and that he'll actually be able to get a hold of Team CSC at their hotel. So Jeff gets on the light rail and he starts to go home. And I just had to ask this question. And you're on the light rail and you've got to be thinking to yourself, boy, that was really stupid. I'm not going to get my wheel back, right? Uh, yeah, I was pretty sure that the wheel was going to be lost in the back of the mechanics van. And I'm like, you know, I've got no idea if I'm going to even be able to contact them, even though I know what hotel they're staying at. That <laughs> means relatively nothing. So Jeff calls the hotel and he has to give him this story because, of course, reception is just not going to connect you to some professional bike racer just because you say you want to. And instead, they connect him to one of the team officials and Jeff says, look, just take down my address. And the, the guy, English isn't even his first language, so that's very difficult. And finally, he says, well, well, who was the rider? And this is what he finds out. Finally, he comes to me, what rider was it? He's like, oh, it was Bobby. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's like, here, here's his room number. You should talk to him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so now you're supposed to call the front desk and ask for Bobby Julik, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so recall the front desk, give him the room number and his name. Uh, they connect me, and he's, of course, not there, so I leave my name and number. Uh, and then hang around at the house a while. About half an hour later, I get the call. And sure enough, it's <laughs> Bobby Julik on the phone. <laughs> Still... So, I haven't so, recovered from all these events that were happening during the day. <laughs> so so the, Bobby Julek calls you at home, and what does he have to say for himself? He said he was coming down the corner on the Calveras, and he had forgot about the it was a raised curb kind of surrounded a stop sign. <laughs> forgot about it from prior years. And he was coming into the turn and locked up his wheel a bit and slammed into the curb, and that totaled up the uh, rear zip, and then he kept riding along the road. The group he was riding with, with uh, Hincapi, you know, took off, and there were no, he was in between the peloton and the leader, so there weren't any neutral risk support or any team cars, uh, so he just kept riding along. And then he was coming up the hill, and he spotted me riding on the sidewalk, <laughs> and he said, uh, there's no way that you were going to get away without me taking your wheel. <laughs> I have a feeling he could have caught you. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the other very humbling thing. I'm riding along trying to evade the uh, race organizer yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> he very easily bridged up to me, no problem, <laughs> riding a hammered wheel. So that, that was a very humbling point. So, nice. so I'm guessing he was, he was pretty uh, appreciative of the fact that, that you gave him the wheel. Um, did you get your wheel back? Yes, she was very cool about it. This evening, today, <laughs> UPS box arrived. We unwrapped it, and lo and behold, yellow wheel, uh, complete with two hats signed by the team, a bag signed by the team, water bottle, and then three kind of publicity photos. Oh, very cool. So not only did you get your wheel yeah. back, but they, they really took care of you. Yeah, it was great. Oh, that is that is a great story. Now, I also saw uh, on this forum that you've actually got proof that he was out there riding your bike. I mean, there's there's photo. Pardon me, riding your wheel. There, there's photos of him with your wheel, aren't there? Uh, yeah, I've got now. I've got at work. I've just gone through Flickr. It's 
every photo set I could find, and I've got maybe 40 pretty good quality photos. And it's very distinctive because I've got a, a yellow Michelin tire on the back, and you can see it in all these photos. And actually one uh, professional photographer was on the second-to-last turn. He's got this very perfect picture of the rear wheel in perfect focus, and the front is a little bit blurry. <laughs> But professional photo that I'm going to purchase. It's got him right in the rear wheel. So it's 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 sort of like one of those David Letterman brush with greatness moments, isn't it? Definitely, very unexpected. <laughs> very unexpected, <laughs> and, and 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 I've seen your name, you know, in in various places all over the internet. People have really picked up on this story because, uh, for a number of reasons, one, you know, it's the brush with greatness. Two, it's it's this, you know, sort of um, serpentine way you had to find your way to Bobby to get your wheel back. And then, of course, there's also those people who are questioning, well, gee, you know, was this uh, was this even legal by the by the rules for him to do something like this, right? Yeah, definitely. Pretty much all those aspects have been touched on the uh, forum post. Now it's got, I think it's going to eclipse 40,000 views tonight. <laughs> and, of course, I'm going to link to it in my show notes as well. So, well, listen, it's a great story. Um, hopefully you had a little bit of fun with it, and uh, I think it's it's a great um, just one of those little fan moments that you don't expect, but that can happen really any time, uh, whether it's in professional cycling or any other professional sport. And Jeff, I really appreciate you sharing it with us here on the show. No problem. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Well, so there's Jeff and his brush with greatness. And I, I was really taken by the story. I hope you were too. And uh, kudos to Team CSC for really taking care of him and and sending him some great memorabilia. Uh, I don't know what the rule is. Uh, I suspect, however, uh, that this would probably not uh, be something that the UCI would smile upon. Uh, it seems to me that this would be fan interference. But uh, nevertheless, a cool story and uh, one that I think Jeff's going to be telling for quite some time. Well, once again, we have gone just a little bit long, so we are going to close out the show here. But before we go, just a couple of words on how to contact me with any comments about the show, suggestions, questions, whatever you would like to say. First of all, um, I can contact you anytime via Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a great way to find out what's going on, not only here with the Fredcast, uh, with me personally. As a matter of fact, my, my wife and kids were actually Twittering during my hand surgery last week. That was interesting. Um, and it's also a great way if any cycling news comes out, I can get it to you very, very quickly. I've put a link in the show notes. My username on Twitter is Fredcast, and you can follow me anytime via the web or via your mobile phone. So go ahead and check that out. Um, you can also send me an email anytime, text message uh, in the email, or even an audio comment if you have the ability to record it and drop it into an MP3 or a WAV or an AIFF file and put it into an email. The email address is thefredcast at gmail. Dot com. Of course, we also have a number of ways that you can send audio comments. You can send them via Skype, where the username is the Fredcast, or you can call our Fredcast listener hotline at area code 435-258-6FRED. That's 435-258-6373. And then on the website and in the show notes, we have three ways that you can send me a voicemail using your computer's microphone and no additional software, just using a web tool. You can use TringMe, MyChingo, or Odeo. All those links are in the show notes and on the website. And of course, the website is www.thefredcast.com. 
podsafecyclingmusic.com. Well, as we do every week, we bring you Podsafe Cycling Music, and this week's music is from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Tonight's song is by the artist called Bob Mold. The song is called The Silence Between Us, and I've got links to Bob's website, his Podshow site, where you can find him and this particular song on iTunes. So between this week and next, stay tuned. Can't wait to see what happens in Perry Nice with the UCI and the Riders and the ASO. Things are definitely heating up as we head towards spring. Between this week and next, I hope that you enjoy the music, but most of all, enjoy the ride. A fallen trace to sit you a sand weeding marsh. The lowland birds and crickets roared. The final sound of fall along the banks of the river. We approach the footbridge, entering the wilderness, following my footsteps. The silence. To consume most every thought Then lies a calm and steady hand That someday you might see Perhaps it isn't what you wanted Or even what you're looking for But once you see the symmetry Once you see that you and me The silence, the sweetest is the time 